Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Soul Focused Radio. This is your host, Martin Friedman, and I am extremely excited to be joined today by one of our Soul Focused Group facilitators, Annie Hostetter. Hey, Annie, how you doing? I'm great. How are you, Martin? I'm doing really, really well. Just in, enjoying life. Um, have a little bit of a lower pay, a slower paced week this week, so I'm kind of relaxing a little bit and, and not working too hard. You know, just getting stuff done. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in a really good space. What's going on for you? Beautiful. Well, yeah, kind of the same. It's a beautiful, beautiful day. I'm watching petals fly from the trees. Um, and yeah, really just set up feeling very settled in the day. So. Right. So just for our listeners, uh, we'll let our listeners know that you're joining us from Indianapolis, Indiana. Yes. Yeah. My hometown. Born and raised, right? <laughs> yep. How many generations back does your family go in, in Indianapolis? So my parents both moved from smaller towns um, in Indiana. My dad was from Putnam County, a town called Rochdale, Indiana. Wow. wow. My mom was from, and his family goes pretty far back um, in, in Putnam County. And my mom grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, her parents moved here from New York City uh, to work mm. at Indiana University. Okay, okay, nice, nice. So you have, but you you have a lot of history there, and I know, I know because I've I've come there. You know, I've been there as a trainer with you, and I so I know you have a, a pretty deep rooted community in Indianapolis. Yeah, absolutely. I have um, my parents owned a restaurant growing up, and it was a vegetarian restaurant in the eighties and nineties. So it was pretty in Indiana. So it was very niche, and through that, you know, really branched out and met a lot of people, and kind of grew our community very strong here. And I have three older brothers and. Yes, we have a very a big community. We're kind of a vibrant family. So, <laughs> uh, mm. yeah. Nice, nice. So tell us a little bit about, like, how did you get involved in uh, working on issues of racism? When does racism, race and racism become something that it gets on your radar? And when do you start working in that area? It might be two different answers. might be the same answer, but those that's what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. So... My grandfather was a sociologist. My mother's father was a sociologist who did his dissertation on Levittown and was very active in, he was kind of a beatnik and then very active in school desegregation here in Indianapolis, um, which didn't happen until the 80s, really. And so I grew up, you know, there were a lot of conversations about stru structural racism from a kind of sociological perspective that I grew up hearing and being a part of. My grandfather also worked a lot on poverty um, and on working on, with issues of poverty. So that was a conversation that I was pretty aware of, but I don't know that I internalized much of it. So I had a very solid base of that. And I also, I grew up with some really incredible teachers in my life who talked very upfront about racism. I had a teacher, Hazel Tribble, who, an incredible woman who, when I said I was visiting, going to visit family in Lynchburg, Virginia, made sure that 
you know, we had a conversation about the history of that area and what it means to bring up lynching. And so that conversation kind of had been part part of my life, but I would say I didn't really fully, I mean, I don't know if we ever fully step into that, right? But um, mm-hmm. I graduated college in 2005, and that fall was when um, Hurricane Katrina hit mm. New Orleans. And I was working a job in a cafe and <laughs> kind of, you know, felt called to go down there. Mm-hmm. And I ended up working with this organization, Common Ground Relief, mm-hmm. which had been formed by a former Black Panther activist, Malik Rahim, and a and a lot of kind of white anarchist activists. And um, they came together to do some relief work. And I ended up there. And we partnered with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond to kind of contextualize the events that happened in New Orleans. And I think that's when things really came together for me in kind of mind, spirit, heart, all kind of coalesced during that time to really activate me towards working on racism. Yeah. So what was that like for you? Cause I, I remember it, you know, from a, a different perspective, you know, of already having been a trainer with people's Institute for about 10 years at that point. And uh, just remember like the, basically the waves of, of young white people coming down there, you know, and um, you know, what was that like from your perspective? To, to be to be one of those waves of white people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a perfectly apt description of it. Um, waves of white people, especially young college students or just graduated. Yeah, I will say I came down because I thought I was going to save people, you know? I came down with very much a savior mentality and very quickly, I think came to a pretty harsh understanding of the full context and what what my role could be. I had intended to stay a week and I ended up mm. staying 7 months. Wow. And I ended up being a volunteer coordinator actually. So mm. I came as part of a wave <laughs> and mm-hmm. stayed right. and managed the other waves. <laughs> um so mm, I got you. I really started to understand one of the things People's Institute helped us do was to do a history of the area for new volunteers. And so I would do, you know, I would kind of share the history of the area for new volunteers, which is slightly ironic considering I had no history (laughs) there. But Mm -hmm. um, I at first really wanted to distance myself from from other people once I got a little bit of a solid footing and say, well, I wasn't, I'm not one of those people. I'm not coming here into a historically black neighborhood here to save people. But that's exactly how I had come thinking, mm-hmm. how I would come down thinking. And it helped me realize that like what I was seeing that I disliked in a lot of people was a part of what I had internalized as well. 
mm-hmm. and helped me kind of work to deconstruct some of that in my own mentality and try and help other folks too. Because, you know, it's, New Orleans also has a real, you know, there is a real part, like part of the, a party vibe. And a lot of people came down expecting that. Um, mm. But, you know, that also in the wake of the real disaster and the real human suffering, it was a tough juxtaposition. And being able to understand the context that it wasn't just a one-off where there was a disaster that happened with there was flooding and people suffered and we're going to just, you know, fix up people's houses and then it'll be fine. Um, I think it gave me a longer view of the roots of the disaster there and the, how it's connected, you know, the environmental, um, how it's connected to environmental justice to climate justice. I had already had some environmental um, background. My college degree was in environmental politics, but Mm -hmm. to really understand the full, how everything was connected in a larger system really informed how I went forward, I guess, and how I approached my time there in New Orleans. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I definitely, you know, on our, the second part of our, of our, of our two podcasts today, I really want to unpack the climate justice and the environmental racism and environmental racial justice. I want to unpack that with you a lot more. Um, I also know that you currently do a lot of work with like white folks, right? Like in white caucuses. And I think you work with, um, you, we work with Surge. Well, I don't think, I know you work with Surge in, um, in Indianapolis. And, you know, so how did that, how did those experiences start to inform, you know, your working specifically with white people, you know, in, in what's called commonly called anti-racist white organizing? Um, how did it inform that? And, you know, tell us a little bit about your experience working with white folks around issues of racism. Yeah, I think being in New Orleans and hearing from being able to see very firsthand the good intentions versus the impact of white folks. You know, it really, I had kind of, you know, grown up very similar to how a lot of people had thinking, having an idea of who was a racist Mm -hmm. and what that meant. And that racists were generally Southern white men who had, you know, hate in their heart Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, what I was able to really see was that in this organization where folks were really coming down with an idea of like, of helping and love really wanted to have a positive impact and had a lot of love for people, but their impact was pretty harmful in a lot of ways. And not because they had hate in their heart at all, you know, but because we had internalized a lot of ideas about what was good, who was good. And I saw a lot of myself in that, you know, and I I saw that in myself. And so it seems to me that, you know, while it felt, it felt good and right to, you know, I really wanted to kind of distance myself from a lot of those folks. I felt too connected to it to entirely disengage. 
And so I then, when I left New Orleans, I actually went to Appalachia. I went to Mm. the mountains of North Carolina and spent just a year there. But really, I saw a lot of this, you know, a lot of the same kind of damage that had been done to environmentally and um, as far as like people living in poverty and, you know, I saw, I saw a lot of the, the same people in a lot of similar conditions and it felt like a lot of the conversation for me was connecting to, to those folks connect and being able to make connections for myself and for other people. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, it wasn't like a direct line either. You know, I then went on to Tanzania and wanted to do development, which, you know, when I really think about it is a product of, you know, colonial concepts. And I didn't really make those connections mm-hmm. at the, at the time. And so I still, you know, I think in my head, I understood that I needed to be working with white people to kind of understand the concepts that we've been living with and working out, working out of. I still, Mm -hmm. I still wanted to go and save, save people of color. (laughs) You know, that's been a, a journey for me and for a lot of you know, liberal white women, I would say. So I wanted to to think that I was different, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really, you know, I was acting out a lot of colonial ideas about what it means to be good and right and developed and mm-hmm. in this world. Yeah, that's that's fascinating that, you know, you saw yourself in that picture, because I think, you know, even like you say, defining those terms, like that's a very specific cultural viewpoint to talk about developed. What does it mean to develop? What's a developing nation? You know, what's undeveloped? You know, I think that that's a really powerful perspective. I mean, you know, this is a I'm learning more about you today, too, than I ever knew. And just, you know, you have a real powerful collection of stories in terms of your experiences and your viewpoints. And I think. You know, two things I really want to explore uh, in this podcast is one, you know, you brought up one of my favorite subjects, which is that gap between intent and impact. And I think that 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 aligns with the other thing, you know, which is how, how even with good intent, like when you travel, when you were living in New Orleans, even when you were in the, you know, the poor white areas of Appalachia, North Carolina, you know, how did you see that gap between intent and impact play out for you? And what do you think is sort of And not even just, you know, for you, for sure. And then also in, you know, in the circumstances that you were in um, with other other folks as well. But, you know, specifically, how did you see that play out? And what do you what do you see as talking to the white folks that are listening today? What do you see as our way out of that gap, that huge gap that often exists between intent and impact? So that, that was a lot there. But basically, you know, to summarize, how did you see it play out? And, and how do you see us getting out of that that huge gap between intent and impact? Mm, yeah, that was a lot. I'm gonna I'll I'll try and tackle it. But I think the gaps, some of the places that I saw gaps in how I how I showed up and how I wanted to show up would be 
even just this, I, how you described the waves of people, right? The waves that actually a lot of times, like we, we thought that, you know, showing up just us, us being there, just our very presence would improve a place, right? Mm. Just our very showing up would lead to something better. And we didn't, I, I mean, I will tell you, I was straight out of liberal arts college, right? I didn't have skills <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to be doing development, right? I didn't have skills to be doing relief work. But, you know, I, I didn't, I couldn't rebuild any houses. I couldn't really do much of anything very useful. Right. But my intent, you know, and so I showed up and I was like, okay, I'm here by, by very nature of my being here, things will improve, even if I'm not actually, if I don't have any skills to give. And so what ended up happening is that so many of the, the resources that could have been used for people who are in New Orleans got diverted to volunteers, got mm. diverted to the housing and feeding of volunteers. And I will say that, you know, I then be- became part of that, right? I housed, that was what I did as I help, helped make sure we had housing and food for our volunteers and jobs. And when some of the residents who were trying to return came back and they were like, okay, well, you know, maybe you could house us. We were like, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. That's too complicated. Right. And I will say that I actually ended up, you know, actively supporting volunteers getting housed and fed and not supporting residents getting housed and fed. And that wouldn't have been my intent at all. But the impact was that we diverted all these resources, housing, food, attention, all of this to, to the volunteers and left the residents without those things. And then also, you know, by the presence of a lot of white college age students, there ended up being the areas that we, we moved into actually didn't really help return the residents who had been living there, but instead got rehoused to folks who felt safe being there in areas that they didn't before, which um, mm-hmm. led to gentrification of those areas. And I could talk a lot about, about those kinds of, those patterns actually in my very, my life. My family moved into, in 83, the year I was born, moved into a black neighborhood because at the time there was a lot of white flight and my family's intent was to not be part of that white flight. But the impact was that we ended up bringing a lot of other white folks into the neighborhood and pushing, displacing the folks who lived there before. So many instances in my life of that gap. Yeah, those are incredible examples, incredible examples of us intending to do good and instead, you know, creating some level of harm, you know, talking about unintentionally creating those harm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So part two of the question is, you know, what is your journey? What is your practice and your process to close that gap for yourself and, and as a leader with other anti-racist white folks? What is, your, what is your process and practice? I would say a lot more of my practice involves the speed at which I want to move and make and the expectation for 
for myself and for others. I would say that a lot of the gap in intent and impact is around like wanting to make choices really quickly without thinking through or finding out the history of an area or of the work that I've been in. So I've, I try and, you know, kind of be a little more grounded in my decision making. I also, I mean, I've moved back to Indianapolis. For me, some of it is, I think it was Grace Lee Boggs said the most radical thing I ever did was stay put. <laughs> and for me, and this is not, not necessarily for everyone, but for me, a lot of that is rooting in community and building relationships with the people around me. I think it's kind of this parachuting in and not having context for the work I'm doing or relationships where people would be able to give me input has led to some of my, I don't want to call them mistakes, <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. yeah. some of, you know, some of the things that I, I would have, I would do differently, I guess. So I would say, yeah, rooting and community moving a little bit slower and really trying to, I guess. And when I say the speed and working on slower, it's just taking the time to really like learn the history. I think a lot of what I have, the choices I've made in my life have been based in a, you know, lack of historical understanding and a historical view of the world. Right. And not trying to take the time to understand. I mean, I didn't really understand any of the places that I, moved to thinking I was going to change. And Mm. I think that's one of the reasons I've moved back to where I live within a half mile of every person in my family. (laughs) Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is because for me, I want to be rooted in community. And I think I have built a lot of trust and relationships with people around me who we can help understand the context and what we're, we're working in and be able to kind of inform how we make choices together based on a variety of voices and um, a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. And I think I didn't, that speed too, like I, I moved places and I left immediately, you know, seven months here, 12 months there, eight months here. And that's not really enough time to build those, those relationships and build that trust. I think a lot of, you know, we talk about accountability and a lot of it requires trust on both sides or all sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. So, and, I, and I do think, you know, that's a, a great, you know, a great thought around how do we heal from that gap of the intent? Because, you know, obviously with Soul Focus Group, everything is geared towards healing from racism. So for us as white folks, you know, maybe, you know, really thinking about what you said as a process to heal and the healing for, for me, what I hear you saying is in many ways, it's a shift out of white culture, white cultural ways of knowing and being into more relational, you know, ways of knowing and being that linearness can really act as a, you know, a way to agitate that gap and make that gap grow as opposed to narrowing it. So that was very helpful. I appreciated you sharing that. And, and I'd offer growth opportunities instead of mistakes. You know, opportunities yeah, thank for you. Growth. Yeah, <laughs> thank no problem. So as we, we're going to close out this, uh, you know, this first part of our podcast 
with you, Annie, and then we're going to come back and talk more specifically around environmental racism. But you told me a very fascinating fact about you before we got on here. And so I, I, I want you to share with us. You said that you were a child voiceover actor. So you gotta, I, now you have to tell us a little bit about that. I was, yes. I, I actually I didn't just do voiceovers either, Martin. I, okay. I, I did some other <laughs> work as well. So there was a movie called Eight Men Out that was filmed in mm-hmm. Indianapolis when I was a kid. And yeah. my family went to be extras because it was a big thing for our city. And I thought it was just, it was so much fun. I got to put on costumes and miss school and all that. So I, <laughs> I, yeah, as a, as a kid, I got really into um, doing voiceovers and an odd commercial here and there. It was really fun, but it wasn't, it wasn't ever a huge passion, but it, it definitely was something that I enjoyed doing. And I think it, it really helped me step into being able to, to speak in with people. So much of that is I, you know, I was in spaces with a lot of different new people all the time as a pretty young kid. And I um, got to have a lot of conversations with people that I, I wouldn't have otherwise had. So really set me up for one of the things I love doing, which is having conversations, which is how I think of facilitating. Well, that's very cool. A little known. See, you see, folks, you listen to our podcast and you learn things about our facilitators that you never knew before. Actually learned several things about you today, Annie. This was very interesting and informative, and I really enjoyed it. And I can't wait for our next conversation, which is going to come up in just a minute. Uh, I want to thank you for talking to us. I want to thank everybody for listening today. Um, you know that we love you and we love having you on our journey. As always, we invite you to go to soulfocusedgroup.com. Uh, Look at all of our offerings. We have new online offerings there and our our website is going to continue to grow and be updated. So come and check us out for sure. Listen to all of our podcasts on the Spotify platforms and Apple platform, Android platform, and look, look us up on YouTube too. We're adding content to YouTube every week as well. So please come and check us out and be a part of our journey. We ask you to stay safe, stay well, and most of all, stay soul focused. If you wish to support and represent the Soul Focus Group, check out our apparel store at our website, www.soulfocusgroup.com forward slash shop.